You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Because it was less about the how and more about the why. It was less about can I prove that we did this thing and can I tick this box to say that it's done, and more about have I actually properly communicated to people how their data is being used. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the CyberWire's privacy surveillance law and policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co-host, Ben Yellen, from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. Today, Ben talks about the debate around reauthorizing Section 702 of the FISA Amendments Act. I cover the online sale of your mental health data. And later in the show, Annick O'Brien, global data privacy lawyer at CybeSafe. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. All right, Ben, we've got some good stories to share this week. Why don't you start things off for us here? So this story is kind of a heads-up. Uh... In December of this year, Section 702 of the FISA Amendments Act is due to expire. So Congress is going to have a debate around whether to reauthorize that act either in whole or in part. Hmm. Uh, Just to refresh people's memory, Section 702 of the FISA Amendments Act is a national security surveillance program revealed uh, or details of it were revealed as part of the Edward Stone disclosures a decade ago. Hmm. It allows for the National Security Agency to collect uh, communications from non-U.S. persons reasonably believed to be outside of the United States for foreign intelligence purposes. Now, most people wouldn't care about that because, hey, they're not Americans. Why should we care about their uh, communications being collected? But uh, unfortunately for those of us in the United States, there's something, something called Incidental collection, meaning if a U.S. person is on the other end of that communication with an overseas target, then that entire communication, that discrete communication, can go into a searchable database. And generally, the government does not need a warrant to access that database. Mm -hmm. So the fear is that this would be a form of a backdoor search. If you don't have probable cause to surveil an American, catch them talking to an overseas target, and then you can get access to those communications uh, in this sort of backhanded way. Hmm. Congress last reauthorized Section 702 in uh, the very beginning of 2018, uh, and they only made minor changes uh, to the statute. One minor change they made is if there is an advanced criminal investigation uh, and the government wants to search the NSA database for evidence in that advanced criminal investigation, they do have to obtain a warrant. Other than that, though, uh, in any other circumstance, including a situation where you might be curious if somebody's committed a crime, but you're not at that endpoint state of a criminal investigation, 
you are free. Uh, the government is to uh, search that that database. Hmm. Uh, so this article um, that kind of was the basis for this discussion came from Lawfare, from Jeff Kossoff, who is a uh, really prominent academic in this area who works for the U.S. Naval Academy Cyber Science Department. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And his argument is that if Congress wants to uh, protect Section 702, it needs to reign in the FBI. Hmm. And I think that this is critically important. Uh, We've now had a series of reports going back at least five years where the FISA court itself, in opinions that are heavily redacted but later declassified, say that the FBI isn't following proper querying procedures when searching this data. There have been uh, basically an uncountable number of violations of the spirit of the statute uh, in 20 when the report was released in 2017 uh, one of the FISA court judges detailed really widespread abuse um, whether it was intentional or not on the part of FBI employees because there's this kind of serious risk of unwarranted intrusion into the private communications of US persons hmm. Um that kind of was a shot across the bow to the FBI that it needed to clean up its act. Uh, and, <laughs> a knock it off. Yeah, and apparently that has really not taken place. Huh. There was a 2019 opinion uh, that uh, that same FISA judge held that there still appears to be widespread violations of the querying standard by the FBI. Uh, so among some of the unauthorized FBI uses of Section 702, they screened a local police officer candidate uh, to figure out whether that person was qualified to be hired for a job. Hmm. Shouldn't be using a 702 database for that. Uh, vetting a potential confidential source, investigating people who visited an FBI office to perform maintenance, investigating college students who applied for the FBI Collegiate uh, Academy. Uh, so these are pretty blatant violations of this statute, which is intended to concern searches related to national security. Hmm. There are a couple of complicating factors here. The first complicating factor is the FBI and FISA have been under the political microscope largely because of the crossfire hurricane investigation and some anger from uh, political conservatives in this country that they think the FBI was uh, on a witch hunt against Trump and there were abuses in the FISA application for the warrant uh, on Carter Page, who was a former Trump campaign employee. Mm. More importantly, though, is... This discussion really wouldn't be worth it necessarily. I think, you know, in in other circumstances, it might be easy to just say, let's just scrap this program. Hmm. Any person who works in intelligence and signals intelligence will tell you that Section 702 is the crown jewel of our intelligence apparatus. It has been used countless times to uh, stop terrorist plots in this country and around the world. And was the authority used to obtain Alman uh, al-Zawahiri in Iraq. So it provides immense value, so much so that Paul Nakasone, um, who is with the NSA, went in front of a recent hearing by the Privacy Civil Liberties Oversight Board, which is an uh, executive branch entity that reviews these programs, talking about the need uh, for national security purposes to reauthorize this statute. Hmm. So uh, I think these are really setting the parameters for what should be a really interesting debate in 2023 as this um, act is due to sunset. And I'm just very curious as to where this is going to go and and, uh, 
who is going to put a kind of proverbial spike in the in the tires of this program as it marches forward. Is there any uh, discussion as to what a possible compromise could be to, to still give the uh, signals intelligence folks what they need from this, but uh, maybe uh, put some speed bumps in the way of the types of things that the FBI is alleged to have done? Sure. Uh, so the main alternative proposed by civil liberties advocates from both parties would be to prohibit the FBI from querying the Section 702 database for any purpose other than obtaining foreign intelligence information. Hmm. Um, Just, is it, isn't that already the way it's supposed to work? Well, no, I mean, <laughs> the law right now says that once those, informa- once, once those communications are lawfully collected, it's in the database, okay. and legally, for Fourth Amendment purposes— you do not need a warrant to search that database in most circumstances. So this is more of a spirit of the law versus letter of the law. Right. Thing. And okay. it's also the Fourth Amendment, uh, though, you know, we'd like to think that all of these are easy questions. The language of the amendment is very clear. It's really not. Hmm. And Fourth Amendment jurisprudence is very frequently about this rather nebulous term of reasonableness. Hmm. And reasonableness is determined by a totality of the circumstances. So a search can only be reasonable if the government's interests strongly outweigh the invasion of of privacy on uh, Americans' communications. And one of the ways you can alter that balance would be to institute a ban on warrantless searches of this database. Hmm. Now, national security experts would fight against this, and they have many allies in Congress because they think this would be too cumbersome a requirement. If they have information on somebody that they're pretty sure has committed a crime or uh, somebody who is a a threat to commit acts of terrorism, they're not going to want to wait to obtain a a warrant, whether it's from a district court or from the FISA court itself. Mm -hmm. Um, There have been other uh, suggestions. Uh, There was one made last time. This was up for reauthorization uh, who believe that each FBI query of already collected Section 702 data should be considered a separate search uh, so there should be really an individualized analysis for Fourth Amendment purposes uh, for every single distinct search of Section 702 data, not on a programmatic level. Hmm. Um, so those are just a couple of the potential solutions here. Uh, but national security, uh, the national security state and its representatives are going to fight tooth and nail to maintain this authority the way it is. I suspect that the Biden administration will be deferential to intelligence agencies and also fight to have this uh, largely extended as is because it's such a valuable counterintelligence tool. So just so I can be really clear in my understanding of this here, I mean, the purpose of this is to collect data on uh, foreign nationals, right? Right. Right. And so uh, sometimes uh, U.S. citizens have conversations with foreign nationals that might be interesting for people who need it for national security. Right. So uh, if I'm communicating with a terrorist overseas mm-hmm. um, and there's lawful surveillance of that terrorist, I very well might say something incriminating during that phone call or that email or whatever. Right. Uh, and the federal government might want to use that to initiate or to continue a criminal investigation into me. Now, normally to access my own private communications, you'd need a warrant. Right, right. Um, but this is an end around if somebody's talking to uh, an overseas terrorist. So, just, so could it be as simple as 
if you want to search this database, you can only search for foreign nationals. You cannot search for U.S. citizens because their data is being vacuumed up incidentally and not primarily. So yeah, that is definitely a workable solution. It does go against um, how at least courts have considered Fourth Amendment claims around incidental collection. Uh-huh. So most of the previous cases relating to incidental collection related to something called incidental overhear. Basically, let's say you have a warrant to surveil Mafia Guy 1. Mm-hmm. And Mafia Guy 1 is having a phone call with Mafia Guy 2. You don't have a warrant to surveil Mafia Guy 2, but Mafia Guy 2 in the process of surveilling Mafia Guy 1, might say something really uh, incriminating. And Mm -hmm. uh, the FBI would not have to get a separate warrant in those circumstances to go after Mafia Guy 2. I see. So I think in the view of the intelligence community, that same standard should apply here. That's how courts have interpreted it as well. There have been several federal court cases on Section 702. All of them have basically come to the same conclusion, um, Mm -hmm. that... These searches are reasonable if you kind of look at the incidental overhear doctrine uh, and the fact that people really should have a diminished expectation of privacy when they're communicating with anybody uh, overseas Mm -hmm. just because um, people know or should know that overseas targets don't have the same Fourth Amendment protections that U.S. persons do. I'm not saying any of that is right. That's just how courts have seen this issue, and that's, I think, how— the FBI and the NSA would argue uh, during this reauthorization debate. Right. So, again, uh, f- forgive uh, my low-level uh, questioning here, but if you if – you, let's say I, I was hiring – I'm a, a government agency and I'm hiring – let's say I'm the FBI and I'm hiring, you know, Ben Yellen for a job. Terrible decision, FBI. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's a, a, an extreme hypothetical. Mm-hmm. Um, if I wanted to find out if Ben has been having any phone calls with foreign nationals, in general, separate of 702, I would need a warrant to get that information. Yes? yes. Okay. So that's the issue here. Is well, that 702 makes it so that now I have a database that I can search because of the information being gathered on. I can go on a fishing expedition searching for your name to see if you've had any conversations with foreign nationals Without a warrant. That's exactly right. Okay. Yeah. Now, if you were concerned that I had um, illicit conversations with a U.S. person, completely different story. Mm-hmm. Uh, you need a warrant to access those communications. Right. Uh, you know, that's that's really the bread and butter of the Fourth Amendment. But mm-hmm. we do have case law. Um, there's this famous 1990 case, uh, Verdugo, Verdugo Orquidez, which stands for the proposition that non-U.S. persons who are not located in the United States— don't have Fourth Amendment rights. Mm. Um, they are not part of what the Supreme Court called the national community mm. uh, for the purposes of the Fourth Amendment. When you combine that with this incidental overhear doctrine, the combination of those two uh, legal theories would lead to the result that we get, which is that U.S. persons' communications are available in this database and they are searchable. Mm-hmm. What's your sense for how this could go? Ah. <sighs> 
I wish I had a crystal ball on this. <laughs> I also wish there was a like a gambling website where you could take bets on the likeliness of this being. I don't see why not. You could bet on everything else these days. I know. <laughs> Believe Come me, on, I see. We've all, we're all we've all seen the ads. Right. <laughs> uh, Put in your bet on what the Supreme Court will do. I'm trying first, to think of your like first bet is free. Yeah, exactly. Five dollars <laughs> in free bets. Uh, my general instinct is that. The path of least resistance is a lot of arguing and debate, but then ultimately this getting reauthorized with only minor uh, alterations and changes. Hmm. I could very well be wrong. You know, there is a subcommittee in the House of Representatives right now that's been formed to go after alleged misconduct in the FBI. Does that inform how House Republicans see Section 702? I'm not sure. You know, what's interesting, what happened last time is Congress was about to reauthorize Section 702. Uh, There was a Fox News reporter named, uh, I believe it's Andrew Napolitano, Hmm. who's been a longtime opponent of Section 702, wanted to scuttle this reauthorization. And during the Trump years, there was really one way to get in the president's ear. And that was to go on Fox and Friends in the morning. Hmm. So he did the day that the vote was coming up on Congress and said, uh, you know, this is this is the program that was used to surveil President Trump. It worked. Uh, Trump wrote a tweet saying, basically, we should not reauthorize this. Um, This is the tool that was used to spy on me and my supporters. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then you can kind of tell that Paul Ryan, who was Speaker of the House at the time, freaked out, called Trump. And Trump released a separate tweet like two hours later saying, uh, this is just the program that's intended to target t- target terrorist bad guys. So we should uh, <laughs> approve that. And I was like, okay, so that's exactly how they explained it to him over the phone. I see. Got it. Okay. Um, so that's just kind of a funny anecdote. Um, I, I, I would guess if I had to handicap it that I, I do think it'll be uh, – extended with some minor uh, amendment, some minor policy changes. Yeah. I mean, is there some way to do a, a hand slap to the FBI and say, this time we mean it? There is. There are a couple of problems. You know, whenever we get one of these FISA court opinions, it's always uh, kind of a view into the past. It's like when you look at a star, you're seeing what happened oh, yeah. billions of years ago. Right. Um, because they're only declassified, you know, one or two years down the line. And we don't know whether whatever was wrong with the uh, previous application of the program is still an issue. Mm. There's just that time lag. Um, There are things they can do to increase transparency. And I think that would be a very realistic uh, amendment here. Uh, Mm -hmm. One of those things would be to simply require reports, semi-annual, annual, on how many U.S. communications are being uh, captured through this Section 702 database. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been very difficult for journalists and even government agencies to obtain that data. So some requirement that that data be made available in regular intervals to the public might be um, a way that we can get some reform on this. Okay. All right. Well, as you say, it's one to keep an eye on. It's fascinating stuff. Yeah, I'm sure we'll come back to it as the year goes on. I mean, knowing that it's Congress uh, and they have nine months to work on this, I, I'm guessing we're not going to see any 
actual, you know, legislative action until October or November <laughs> right. at the earliest. Right. When it comes to Congress, there's no minute like the last minute. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, we will have a link uh, to that story in the show notes. Uh, my story this week comes from the Washington Post. This is an article written by Drew Harwell, uh, and it's titled Now for Sale, Data on Your Mental Health. Uh, and this article was prompted by a study that was published uh, just earlier this week from a research team at Duke University's Sanford School of Public Policy. Uh, and it's really about the sale of private information, but in this case, the sale of mental health information. So the researcher from Duke, uh, Joanne Kim, uh, she found 11 companies willing to sell bundles of data that included information on what antidepressants people were taking, whether they struggled with insomnia or attention issues, and details on other medical ailments, including Alzheimer's disease or bladder control difficulties. Some of that data was offered in an aggregate form. So, so for example, you could see how many people in a particular zip code might be suffering from depression. But other uh, data was available that could be connected with someone's address. Uh, and, uh, you know, connected in a very, in a way that it wouldn't be that hard to figure out who the person was who was having, uh, this information. Um, this article goes on to talk about some of the really creepy, uh, types of information that was being tracked here. Yeah. This is really bizarre when you get into these pieces of information being tracked. Yeah. Um, there's one in particular that I wanted to highlight here. Let me find it in the article. Uh, in 2013, uh, Pam Dixon, who was uh, the founder and executive director of the World Privacy Forum, which is a research and advocacy group, testified that an Illinois testified before a Senate hearing that an Illinois pharmaceutical marketing company had advertised a list of purported rape sufferers with a thousand names, starting at seventy nine dollars. God, that's just gross. It's Hearing despicable. that out loud, yeah, it, yeah, it's it's absolutely despicable. Um, so I think at the root of this is kind of this disconnect bet between, I guess, a, a, a gaping hole in HIPAA of our personal private health information that has to be protected by certain organizations. The, the health professionals have right. to protect our data through HIPAA, which is what HIPAA was intended to do and by all accounts does a pretty good job of it. But these data brokers are able to collect, aggregate, connect our data, including what I would say, I mean, how much more intimate a detail about a person than whether or not they've been raped. Yeah, I mean, that part is really disturbing to me. HIPAA applies to hospitals, doctors, offices, and so-called covered health entities, which mm -hmm. share Americans' health data. Right. Because of the pandemic and just because of advances in technology, particularly when it comes to mental health, we're sharing information among a lot of, or with a lot of different companies and organizations that aren't protected under HIPAA. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's a real weakness of that law. Uh, I don't think the drafters of HIPAA ever could have imagined the vast online space where people would be sharing private information and that that information would be value, valuable enough to sell to brokers. Um, brokers could sell them to make a profit. I don't think the drafters of HIPAA in the mid-1980s could have foreseen this. Um, it would be nice if lawmakers would do something about this. Yeah. Uh, but this goes back to like the thing we basically say every week on this podcast, 
this is data brokers are completely unregulated at the federal level. And there are only a couple of states that have comprehensive regulations on selling personal data. Mm -hmm. We have no federal data privacy law. This is a a full-on vacuum. And until we have that law and until HIPAA is modernized, that it covers other entities that collect our personal health information, you know, we can admonish these these companies all we want, and certainly we do. It's immoral what they're doing. Right. Uh, But the fact of the matter is it's profitable, and they're going to do it as long as they can get away with it. Yeah. This article points out that there are some senators, uh, uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren, uh, Ron Wyden, and Bernie Sanders, who I suppose in this context, we could it's fair to call them the usual suspects, yep. right? <laughs> yeah, I feel like we've mentioned, if you did a word search on Wyden in the transcripts of our episodes, <laughs> right, he'd right. get a lot of hits. Yeah, so they're backing a bill that would strengthen uh, both state and federal authority against health data misuse and restrict uh, reproductive health data how much of that can be collected and shared. And of course, this is also needs to be put in the context of the Supreme Court overturning Roe versus Wade uh, and uh, data being available for folks who are seeking or who have visited abortion clinics right. or abortion medication. Um, this data is being collected that could be, the consequences could be that someone could be accused of committing a crime. Yeah, I mean, data brokers are interested in, can we sell this person diapers? Uh, mm-hmm. But we're talking now potentially in a post-Roe era about criminal prosecutions being predicated upon data that was collected without the user's knowledge and has just kind of floated around uh, through data brokers from company to to company uh, and ends up in the hands of law enforcement either via subpoena or some other investigative tool. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's, you know, even regardless of how uh, you feel on the abortion issue itself, that's certainly um, a matter of concern as it relates to user privacy. And there's only so much, you know, our federal agencies, I think, are... Uh, taking a piecemeal approach at attacking this problem. Mm-hmm. We've talked about a couple of uh, FTC actions related to uh, inflicting civil penalties on organizations that sell this personal data. We talked about the one last month from the online prescription drug service, GoodRx, right. um, after the company was charged with compiling lists of users who bought certain medications and using um, that information to target Facebook ads. Uh the FTC can do that in limited circumstances, but until we actually have a comprehensive federal data privacy law, um, we're really only going to be able to attack this problem on the edges and not at this really foundational level of, you know, why is there this entire industry centered around our own personal information and what can we do about it? Yeah. I can't help wondering if this is the kind of thing that will only see attention if someone like comedian John Oliver were to buy up the data, all of the mental health data that he could. Of Congress people? Of Congress, yeah. I think uh, that's coming. I think we just gave him right? a good idea for an episode. <laughs> well, I mean, he remember he already did it. Uh, there was a, There was an episode he had, I want to say, oh gosh, over a year ago where he was buying location data of Congress people. Not much seemed to have come to that, but I'm just imagining the episode where if he bought up uh, information like this and could, would even threatening to name names, would that be enough to, to rattle Congress enough uh, that they would do something about this? I don't know. I don't know. 
It's probably our best shot. I still think John Oliver <laughs> could make a really interesting episode out of it. Yeah. Um, I think he, I, if I'm not mistaken, he's already done something on data brokers. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. But I think specifically yeah. related to mental health would be a really interesting angle. I mean, it is exploiting vulnerabilities because I think all of us have um, suffered the mental health effects of living through a, a extended pandemic. Right. And more people than ever are searching out uh, online mental health services. So it is exploiting people's vulnerability. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's uh, one of the quotes here from the, uh, uh, a person involved in the study said, we shouldn't have a, quote, tasting menu for buying people's health data. Mm-hmm. And I think that summarizes it quite well. Yeah, I agree. All right, well, we will have a link to this story in the show notes. Again, this is from the Washington Post, uh, written by Drew Harwell. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. Ben, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Annick O'Brien. She is a global data privacy lawyer at an organization called CybeSafe. Here's my conversation with Annick O'Brien. Data minimization is one of the principles, of course, of GDPR. And the challenge that we find with data minimization is firstly that a lot of people have difficulties in organizations putting the concept of data minimization into practice. So taking what is a principle and turning it into a process can sometimes be a little bit challenging. And of course, the industry itself has developed, all industries develop in such a way that everybody is calling data the new oil. I'm not so sure I agree that it's the new oil, but we do see it as a currency. Data has value. So it's like saying that every organization needs to have this valuable asset in order to develop as an organization in order to make a profit and to be successful. And at the same time, we have pieces of law like GDPR, but there are many other types um, around the world. We've got um, people in, in Canada and Papua and South Africa. So all over the world, we see different types of laws that are telling us that this asset, this thing that we make money from and make a profit from, is something that we should be trying to minimize. So it feels counterintuitive to minimize the thing that we're making our profit from. So what we do is we try and take a step backwards from this and we look at the challenges and the tensions that we find around the data minimization. 
to try and understand how can we manage these tensions in such a way that it supports our business, minimizes risk, and enhances our organization as an organization that uses privacy as a competitive advantage. And increasingly in, in our modern world, of course, increasing data protection, which is a part of privacy, increasing data protection as a competitive advantage, because there are a number of elements that we look at here. And data is an asset, but it is also a risk. So data is a risk. And a great way of lowering risk in your organization is to get rid of it simply. So this is kind of where data minimization comes in. And this is where we can look at it from another type of angle. And so rather than looking at it from the angle of we're hindering our colleagues, we're impeding business processes, and we're minimizing that very thing that is valuable and creates profit and is an asset, but rather we're minimizing risk. We're minimizing the amount of data that is going around our organization that could be the source of a breach, that could be the source of a problem. And data minimization, I think in order to really pinpoint in on what we need to do, we need to ask two questions. So I think there are two important questions that we are asking when we're looking at the concept of data minimization. Firstly, we all acknowledge that not all data is valuable. Not all data is the asset that's going to create profit for our business. Each business has specific pieces of data that is very important for them. And those are the pieces that we want to keep. So what we're looking at minimizing is not those pieces, but all the surrounding peripheral pieces, all those other pieces of data that could create risk, but we don't need. They're not helping our business. They're not creating profit. We can get rid of them. So that's the first piece. And then the second question that we have to ask ourselves is, why did we take this data? What is the reason that we have it? And this is, and this builds into the other concepts of the GDPR and other privacy laws around lawfulness, fairness, transparency, accountability and liability, as well as storage limitation. But this whole piece about data minimization is taking the minimum amount of data that you need and only keeping that data for the purpose that you need it. And if we're very clear on why we're taking it, as well as the data that has value for us, then the whole process of minimization becomes a process of risk reduction and a process of safeguarding our organization against risk. And really what it becomes is an enabling factor for us as privacy officers or people in organizations helping with the data minimization process. It helps us to help the business to identify where the real value is, and then the business can focus on that value. And the rest, we don't need. So I think in those two ways, asking ourselves those two questions, which is the data that actually has value for us and what are the reasons that we're using it, we can help streamline business, we can help reduce risk, and we can help focus the attention of the entire organization onto the pieces of data that are going to create value and profit in such a way that aligns with the reasons that we took the data, which is aligning with GDPR and aligning with that whole idea of fairness and transparency and telling people what we're using their data for, and then being an organization that uses privacy as a competitive advantage. So by asking those two questions, we're enabling the business in more than two ways. We're enabling the business in many ways to use data in a valuable way and in a way that's going to create profit. And the minimization 
is about minimizing risk and minimizing superfluous data and minimizing that possibility that there is data floating around that could be the cause of a breach, that could be the cause of a problem or an unhappy data subject with a DSAR. But we don't need that data, so we've minimized it. My sense is that we've gone through a couple of phases here where, you know, in the early days of people collecting this data en masse and uh, when storage became cheap and ubiquitous, it was sort of an attitude of collect everything and keep it for as long as you can, because why not? But it seems to me, you know, you, you mentioned that a lot of people say that data is like the oil of business these days. I wonder if it's more like plutonium, where you know, it can power a lot of things, but if you get too much of it in one place, bad things can happen. I completely agree. There's the question of too much of it in one place, but bad things can happen. And then there's also the, the idea that too much of it makes it really hard to identify which is the valuable piece. And we all know that um, if I go back to the analogy of oil, if I had barrels of oil, I'd know how many barrels I had and I'd know where they were stored and I'd know what the value of them was and I'd have an inventory and I'd know who I was selling them to and how I was transporting them. When we have too much data, many organizations who embark on data retention and data minimization projects and organizations that often have breaches are in a situation where, unlike oil, they don't know how many barrels of data they have. They don't know where it is. They don't know what it looks like, how it's structured, how it's protected, who has access to it. So actually, in some ways, this idea that data, all data as an asset, is something that we really should, as organizations, be moving away from because having that mindset kind of encourages us to hoard data. And we don't want to do that because we need to understand in order to comply with legislation, in order to be fair and transparent to our customers, to consumers, in order to comply with laws and increasingly with international data transfer laws, we need to understand what data we have and where it's going. And when we look at developments in data governance and data localization laws, it's very important that we understand exactly which data is being held in the country where the data was collected and exactly which data is being transferred to other countries, how, why, and what are the requirements in those other countries. So that whole piece about plutonium, I think, is a really, really good example of something that you don't want to just hoard as much as you can, but rather you want to understand exactly what you need and do the correct things and the safe things with it so as not to create undue risk for your organization. Yeah, you know, it strikes me that um, the EU really led the way here with GDPR, and we're a few years into that now. W what is your perspective here? What are your insights in terms of where GDPR has been a success, but then also have there been unintended consequences, unforeseen things that we've had to deal with? That's a great question, because with all major pieces of law, like we see with GDPR, there's always an upside and a downside for business. And there's that period of time, which is a period of adjustment and a period of uncertainty, and this, this can be difficult for businesses. Um, GDPR is a principle-based piece of legislation. So for a lot of organizations, especially for compliance lawyers and people who are used to dealing with tick-the-box forms of compliance and audit, it was a difficult piece of legislation to integrate into business processes because it was less about the how and more about the why. It was less about can I prove that we did this thing and can I tick this box to say that it's done and more about have I actually properly communicated to people 
how their data is being used and can they contact me in order to understand this? These types of questions were the types of new questions that organisations were having to grapple with. So there was a period of time when, when organisations had to do a lot of change from within because it was less about, again, ticking the box on the audit and more about what is the actual result of the privacy programme that we've put in place? How have we actually demonstrated accountability, one of the principles of GDPR? How can we show that we're compliant? Because I always say compliance is not just about doing the right thing. Compliance is about showing that you've done the right thing. So there was a period of uncertainty for organizations where a lot of time and effort was spent implementing privacy programs. I think we're, we're coming to a point in time whereby those privacy programs, to the extent that they are successful and are measurable and can demonstrate compliance and accountability whilst not impeding on business process, are working in such a way that we can say that that is in place. However, in terms of privacy trends and what has been happening recently and what's looking to happen, what we're looking at happening in the future, we've got the whole piece around enforcement. So we see that there are a lot more fines um, going on in Europe around breach of confidentiality, breach of integrity, and this is the GDPR standard on security. So we continue to see fines against organizations for the breach of these principles, as well as in the future, we, we, we expect to see more fines along those lines. We've seen some recent big fines against some big tech organizations for the breach of the privacy by design and default principle. That's Article 25, privacy by design and default. So building privacy into your product. So it's no longer acceptable to reverse engineer privacy into something. But really, as you build and as you develop, you need to be able to show that you're thinking about privacy as you're moving forward. Organizations are reporting less data breaches than they have previously. So in the very beginning of GDPR, we saw many, many reports of data breaches from organizations. We do see that starting to slow off. There are some countries who report more than others, and that's in some cases due to culture. But we do see that organizations are becoming more comfortable in what is a data breach and indeed what is a reportable data breach, because there are two steps when we're looking at a breach. The first is, is this a breach? And secondly, do we need to notify data subjects? Do we need to notify the regulator? Not all data breaches require or indeed should involve reporting to a regulator and or data subjects, but we see that starting to drop off and we can only imagine that many DPOs and many organizations are coming to a place where they understand how to manage this risk more appropriately than simply reporting every single breach to the regulator. In terms of trends that we see coming up in the future, there will probably be more discussion and more guidance coming from regulators around the topic of artificial intelligence, because there is, of course, the enforcement of the Artificial Intelligence Act, which is coming up in Europe. And this is aiming to ensure that artificial intelligence systems in place in the EU market are safe and respect existing law and respect laws like the GDPR. So we will see more discussion and more guidance around the topics of artificial intelligence. And for any organization that is developing technology in such a way, they now have to be thinking about not just privacy by design and default, but indeed embracing AI to the extent that they can show it as an ethical and responsible organization who uses AI in an ethical and responsible way. And again, bringing it back to that concept of using AI and using data privacy 
as a competitive advantage and less so than seeing it as something that's going to impede business or impede business transfers. Um, and then another topic that I think we could touch on is the whole topic of international data transfers. And we may see in the future a new privacy shield. There may be some developments around the protections that are in place for transfer of data from the EU and Switzerland to the US or indeed from the UK to the US. We wait to see what will develop there. But the whole idea and work around risk assessments um, doing transfer assessments is something that's going to continue to be a burden on certainly small to medium enterprises. So that's something that we're going to see hopefully more development on as we move into the future. Are we seeing that that the consumers are are tracking this here? In other words, you mentioned uh, you know privacy as a competitive advantage. Um, we've certainly seen some major brands. You know, Apple, uh, for example, is probably the the most well known who lead with the notion that uh, that they protect and uh, that that privacy is a core value of the company, and they, and they use that, they promote that. Uh, are we seeing that that is the the reality with consumers that it does make a difference for them in, in the things that they they purchase? I think we do see an increase in interest from consumers, and we've certainly seen that consumers are increasingly aware of their rights, which is quite interesting. Consumers are aware of their right to object, their right to restrict processing, their right to be forgotten. We've seen case law on it, but we do see increasing amounts of DSARs, subject access requests, within organizations. Um, and we see products that are being developed to facilitate individuals in placing these requests and to facilitate the response from organizations in responding to these requests. So certainly we have a much more educated consumer base that understands, data subjects do understand what their rights are, and they do exercise their rights. So organizations do need to be very fully aware of, obviously, the rights of data subjects, but how they're going to be able to comply with the law and respond to those requests. And as such, we see that organizations and businesses that are developing technology that have privacy by design and default at the core of how they are developing are succeeding on a number of factors. They're succeeding because they're showing the market that they understand that this is an important topic for consumers. They're succeeding because they're saving themselves time and money further down the line when subject access requests, VSARs do come up. Because if you develop a product that enables people to manage their own data, if you develop a product that enables people to delete, to modify, to restrict, to update their own data, it means that you're saving all that time when later down the line somebody asks, can you please delete my data? Can you please update my data? Can I opt out of this type of processing? If your product enables people to do this themselves, it means you're saving lots of time later down the line. You don't have to respond to those requests. People have control of their own data. This is the exact purpose of privacy by design and default. And it's also a great way to show that you understand what matters to consumers and you're giving them the power. And this will become more important as we see more laws develop around the idea of data localization. Consumers might want their data to stay in the jurisdiction that they live. They might not want their data to be transferred abroad. And in such case, 
having a product that's designed in such a way that an individual can decide whether or not they want their data to stay, maybe for a different price. It's one price if your data gets transferred and it's another price if your data is stored locally. But enabling people to have that choice is something that's going to be certainly a competitive advantage for businesses and businesses that show that they are sensitive and aware of the privacy concerns of consumers are organizations that are going to come out ahead. And indeed, it's not just in the area of privacy by design when it comes to big tech or companies that are developing technological products, but indeed services, organizations, airlines, restaurants, organizations that service consumers who have privacy pledges on their website, who have areas where when you log into your own personal area, you can control your data. There are many, many different ways of showing consumers that you take privacy seriously. And one thing we have seen, which is very interesting, is that organizations that come out ahead of data breaches, organizations that say, we take privacy seriously, we are interested in this, we make this privacy pledge, we are transparent, this is what we do. When those organizations, and I say when and not if, because it's a case of when, when it comes to data breach for every organization, when those organizations have an incident coming out ahead of us and saying, this is important for us, and this thing went wrong, this is how we're going to fix it, actually works in their favor, much more so than organizations who try to ignore the issue. It works in their favor as it comes to consumer trust, but also as it relates to regulators and the FTC, who always want organizations to be as transparent and accountable as they can possibly be. So these are two very important reasons why privacy by design and default is certainly increasingly a competitive advantage for businesses. What do you think? Really interesting interview. I mean, I think a theme that she gets to that we've talked about is having these minimization procedures in effect isn't an altruistic act. It's trying to get an organization a competitive advantage. And I think that's the only way that we're going to see widespread adoption of this type of um, data minimization. So I Mm -hmm. thought it was really interesting in that respect. Yeah. Again, our thanks to Annika O'Brien for joining us. Uh, She is a global data privacy lawyer at CybeSafe, and we appreciate her taking the time. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and zero-trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their sassy journey, visit netskope.com. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. 
The Caveat Podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Ben Yellen. Thanks for listening. Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T-Minus Space Daily, and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too. We here at N2K CyberWire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary, and we'd like to know how we're doing. Please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us. (laughs) 